calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and today I'm sharing with you an author interview I held with Andrea Penrose, who you may be familiar with. She's the author of Regency era historical fiction, including the acclaimed Rexford and Sloan mystery series, as well as Regency romances written under the names Kara Elliott and Andrea Pickens. So her newest book is she's written all these Regency books but this is the first time she's written a book that's based on a real life person. So she describes it as sort of a historical fiction biography. And the person who this book is about is Lady Hester Stanhope, who I had not heard of until I came across this book. So I just want to give you some facts about Lady Hester Stanhope. So she was around in the Regency era. She's born 1776. And so she was around during the time where Carolina Brunswick was still in England. Prinny, Carolina Brunswick's husband, so like the Regency era, we've talked about this in the Carolina Brunswick episode, but so George III was incapacitated. So his son, George, who would later become George IV, became the regent. But all those people who are around, like Mary Shelley is on the scene, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, who you may have heard about. I have not yet done a podcast about her, but I will. But just like Lord Byron, Jane Austen, like all the people are around and Hester Stanhope is right in the mix of all of it, or she was. So this book, The Diamond of London, takes place during this Regency era part of her life. Hester Stanhope lived for longer than that as well. She decided sort of after doing the Regency era thing, which is what this book is about. This book is all about her time in London in this era. She went off and decided to become an explorer. Hester Stanhope did. So she was known as an adventurer, sort of like a I picture her like Phryne Fisher from Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries a little bit where she's this wealthy woman who kind of travels around and just, I don't know, sort of like a Lady Indiana Jones sort of vibe. So she became famous as this kind of weirdo, basically, in you know the 1820s, 1830s to be a woman who is, she went off, she settled in Lebanon eventually, and she was known 
as kind of the queen of Lebanon. Like she was not the queen of Lebanon, but she just was kind of like, she started her own sort of quasi royal court. Like she wore pants all the time. Like that's her second part of her life. If you've heard of her, it's probably from that, from her Indiana Jones era. Andrea's book is about the first part of her life, which is kind of like how, so it's kind of a prequel to that. How does this young woman from like high society make the decisions that lead her to become for the rest of her life after the events of this book, this explorer and an archeologist. So it's a really interesting book, The Diamond of London. And so I'm talking here with Andrea Penrose about this book, which has just been published. So after you hear this interview, maybe you're going to want to go and pick up a copy. So anyway, please enjoy this chat between me and Andrea Penrose. So I'm joined today by Andrea Penrose. Welcome to Vulgar History, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. So we're here today to talk about your most recent book, which is The Diamond of London. But more specifically, where I think my listeners are going to really be intrigued is the main character of your book, who is a real-life Regency-era iconoclast, I guess. Can you explain who she is? (laughs) (laughs) She is probably the prototype for every rebellious Regency heroine you've ever read. She was um, really led an extraordinary life, always pushing the boundaries of of what society said a woman could and couldn't do. It's really quite amazing, her life. So Lady Hester Stanhope, was it... I'm just curious if this is someone who you've come across, because you've written other Regency-era books... So this is someone who you were familiar with before you started doing more of a deep dive into her life? I was familiar with the very later part of her life, where she was um, in the Middle East and created her own private army, had a, had a citadel, was considered the queen of uh, the desert. Really, probably the most famous adventurer and, and traveler in the, in the mid-19th century. And I had always heard how eccentric and just really living according to her own rules she was. But when I began looking more closely at her, I realized her early life was absolutely just as fascinating. And it sort of is the origin story of what led her to be the queen of the desert. Just became enthralled by her life in London. What I found interesting in reading your book, which I have read, is I'm I'm pretty familiar with the Regency era just from um, other fiction books, but also just from my own research. And I was excited every time somebody else popped up in the book. I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Like um, Georgiana shows up, her sister Harriet, um, Caroline of Brunswick is there, just all these little cameos. So it really reminded me that like Hester was there at the same time as all of these much more better known people. Yeah, she um, it, she comes from an extraordinary family, very well connected. They were really. She had her uncle and her grandfather were prime minister of Britain. At one point, most every senior position in the cabinet was held by a relative, either a cousin, an uncle. It was really the Stanhope family, the Grenville family, and the Pitt family um, all intermarried for several generations, creating this incredible, powerful 
group of of related people. And Lady Hester was sort of right in the middle of that. Uh, William Pitt the Younger, William Pitt the Elder were the very famous, still to this day, some of the two two of the most famous British prime ministers. So she was right in the at the nexus of power in London. So she was she was really you know very well acquainted with practically every famous Regency person you can think of. So this novel isn't a romance novel. She has two to three different romances throughout this novel, which I find unusual. I haven't often read books where people, even in a book that's not a romance novel, often there's just kind of one love interest. But she, because you're following her actual trajectory, she's got several love affairs. What was that like to sort of plan out a book where she goes from relationship to relationship? Her life was very tumultuous, based because she, in a, in a world that was really ruled by men, she had decided early on, you can see it in her letters from an early age, um, that she was determined to live life by her own, uh, according to her own inner self. She She had a vision for what she wanted to be. She wanted to have a seat at the table with all her powerful male relatives. She thought she, and she clearly was, as brilliant and as eloquent and and talented as they were. And she just refused to relinquish that that dream. She could have had a very um, comfortable and prominent role in society had she chosen a conventional marriage. She just wouldn't do that. She she really had um, a, a vision for herself, and it led her in to have great triumphs, but it also led to great tragedies. She's just such an interesting character because of that. I, I think she reflects sort of not a storybook heroine, but someone with real-life vulnerabilities, desires, dreams, and and had the courage and the conviction to keep true to those, even when she was sort of in the depths of, of losing her dreams, you know, being forced to relinquish the power she was looking for. Uh, it, it, it's just, it, she's really quite an extraordinary person. You mentioned, I think, just now uh, letters. So what sorts of resources were you able to use when you were researching letters and diaries and, and things like that are still are, were available for you to access? Yeah, the, the, the wonderful thing about Hester is because she comes from such a prominent family, there, there, there is a lot of background material. Her letters were saved. She loved letter writing. She corresponded with family and with friends. And her um, niece in the late 1800s published a collection of the letters. So it was really, um, I had a chance to sort of read her voice and get a sense of, of who, who she was. She was very, very funny and could be very sarcastic, had, had a great sense of humor, I think, a dry sense of humor. She could also be caustic and 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 abrasive. Uh, she she certainly was a very strong personality, and that sort of resonated in the letters and helped me, as as well as just reading the history and the facts of her her timeline that that I was using for the book. It really helped me get a a sense of since I was going to have to create 
her dialogue and and make her into a uh, imagine her in this book and try and make her as true as I could to how I felt she really was. That seems like such an interesting sort of task to do, to take a person who, and it's great that she was, that her letters really show her personality and what she was like. And then you kind of know what the events are that you need to include in your book because it's, it's a biographical fiction. So just trying to, to match that all up, but then at the same time, make it a novel and make a character that people can relate to and can understand. I, when I first um, was talking to my editor about this project, I had real reservations on, I, this seemed, you know, a fictional biography that sounds like an oxymoron. Um, but the more I, I read about her life, the more the storyteller in me thought, oh my gosh, some of these facts are, you couldn't make them up. As you said, all the people that she was coming in contact with and had either love affairs with or had dramatic moments in her life. And I thought, this is just such an interesting challenge. And as I said, I was leery about it because I felt I really had to feel I liked her, you know, and I wasn't sure in the beginning that I was sort of have a bond. And the more I read about her, even despite some of her craziness, I really came to admire her and really be rooting for her. And I think that helped me create her as a person. I, I just felt she was so interesting, so courageous in a time that that really didn't give that option to women. And yet she just reached out and grabbed it. I think it will resonate with modern readers because it's not just dry history. Here is a woman trying to find her place in the world. Against incredible odds, she carved out, not without tragedy, she carved out a, a role for herself. And, and ultimately, I see that as a great triumph, even though, as I said, there are many, there are many tragedies in her life. Yeah, I think every time I think I sort of know what the Regency era was like, I learned about somebody like Hester Stanhope and I realized, no, everyone wasn't, you know, it wasn't just everybody following the rules of society and doing exactly what they were supposed to do. There was, but although most people were, which is why she stood out at the time. I want to talk a bit about her family. You mentioned before, you know, the prime ministers and things like that. Can you explain the title of the book, The Diamond of London, what the diamond is? It's, it plays a role in the book. And I think we can talk about it without spoiling the story. Yeah, I think so, too. Actually, that, that really was one of the stories that captivated me. Her great-great-grandfather was, in a sense, a, a rebel, too. He decided he was going to go to India to make his... He came... He was well-to-do, a merchant, and decided he was going to go to India and take advantage of commerce there and see if he could make his fortune. He was so good at what he did. He was a gadfly to the East India Company, which is the most powerful trading company probably in the world. And and they they ended up hiring him. Well, somehow in his role, he came across this very large diamond. And today it is probably next to the Hope Diamond, the most famous diamond in the world. The story isn't clear how he acquired it. It could be by hook or by crook. 
But he brings this diamond back to England. It makes him a wealthy man, fabulously wealthy. He sells it to the regent of France, who then puts it in the coronation crown. Um, it becomes known as the regent diamond. Today it's in the Louvre, uh, it, and you can go see it. So the diamond gives him the money to make his family just fabulously wealthy, and that's where they begin to his children intermarry with the Pitts and and the Stanhopes. And so the diamond is really this, this brilliant story in her family background. It sort of, I took it as a metaphor, these hard-edged, glittery people who are, are just sort of stand out from the crowd. They, they just, they have a, a, a certain presence, there, a, a certain charisma, we would call it today. I mean, her, her cousin, one of them, Sir Sidney Smith, is a, a renowned war hero who keeps Napoleon from conquering Jerusalem. Um, another, another cousin is, is called the Half-Mad Lord. He is quite a character too. They're they're just when you look at the family, it, it's really quite extraordinary. Her father is a brilliant scientist. He and Benjamin Franklin were friends, and they were the leading experimenters with electricity in the 1700s. So she just comes from this. This diamond seems to have cast light on on this prominent family and, and given them some sort of special magnetism. And then just kind of how her life unfolds, not to get into all the details, because that's what's what's in your book, but there's one, one anecdote that maybe you could talk a bit about. It happens early-ish in the book where she attends a boxing match. I'm just curious <laughs> about how, how, how you came across that detail or how you um, made that scene. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion. And it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. 
Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. Well, that is where creative and artistic license comes through. But her her first, I mean, well, actually second, really, love interest was her cousin, the half-mad Lord. And he was absolutely, I read biographies on him, and um, he, he was a titled aristocrat, but he had run away to sea to be in the Navy and had a very hard scrabble life. He didn't get on with his own father, but inherited the title in his late teens. And he came back to London, but he was, today we might call him sort of borderline spectrum. He was very, um, his mercurial in moods. And he he loved hobnobbing with with pugilists, you know, bare knuckle fighters, and usually from a very, you know, working class. He loved that milieu. He bankrolled a a number of big prize fights, and he just loved that rough and tumble world. And he didn't really fit into the aristocratic world. They all sort of shunned him. He frightened them, you know, because he was so just different. So, it seemed to me, and Hester was always pushing the boundaries too, it seemed to me one of the reasons she really liked him because um, because he was outrageous and she it appealed to her sense of, you know, to hell with the rules. I'm going to, I think she encouraged him. I mean, I think he encouraged her to go for her dreams, you know, because he just did what he felt like doing and and it was an interesting relationship. She was smart enough to know that if they had married, and there's a question of whether he did propose because he felt, well, well, we get along well. We'd let each other do what we you know we wanted. I think she sensed they would have burned each other to a crisp. They were just too strong per each of them, too strong personalities. It it probably would have led to disaster. But it was an interesting time in her life when she was with him. I just love seeing those sorts of sides of, of again, like I keep saying the Regency era, but that's when it takes place. And it's such a sort of well-trod era for fiction. So I love kind of like poking into these corners and learning about kind of other things that were happening besides the balls and the gowns and things. I mean, that's what I love about the era is when you when you think about it, it's the birth of the modern world. Society was really being turned upside down, both in politics, in music, in art, in science. Certainly, you had the Industrial Revolution. It, it, society was just in a flux. It was sort of tradition being challenged by new ideas in every field. Um, and 
I, I find it a wonderful time to set a novel in uh, because there's that change frightens people. And, and so there's this simmering tension really in, in all sorts of aspects of life there. And I think, you know, you had the first feminist manifestos being written by Mary Wollstonecraft. So women were beginning to question why, why are these strictures on us? Why can't we be writers or artists or scientists or whatever? You're really seeing this um, bubbling up of no changes, you know, things are going to change. And I, I think that's a really interesting sort of background to try and get into a Regency novel. And so Hester herself, I mean, just based on what you were just saying, do you think if she had been born a hundred years earlier, she could have lived the same life she did? Or was it really because of the opportunities that she was, because of the advances in politics and philosophy and science that there was, she was able to to do more things? You know, I, I think Probably because there was a stirring. Um, but, you know, when you look at history, it's interesting. There are women who who have been strong and carved out roles in earlier times, too. We just haven't heard enough about them. You know, I it, in sort of reading about George and thing, I realized, you know, there was a family, the Howe family, where the, the, the brothers were all military men. They actually, they, they headed the... Um, the British forces in the American Revolution. And the sister was really the powerful one. She was at home orchestrating all the politics to keep her brothers in seats of power in the military. And you don't really read about that very much. So I think women, if really strong women have found ways, but I do think the Regency began to encourage more people. You had, you know, Mary Shelley, you know, establishing herself as a writer and, you know, eloping with the poet Shelley, doing things that really defied convention. So it's the Regency really is sort of, I think, the flowering of that. And do you think for the things that Hester, like the real life Hester, that she was able to do in her life? Someone else in a different family, even of her same class, might not have been able to if there was more of a controlling hand sort of guiding what she was doing if she had been forced into a marriage she didn't want. or if So how do you think her family sort of, in what ways did they support or get in her way, do you think? I think absolutely. Being from a very prominent family gave her entree um, into... Um, situations and possibilities that that uh, uh, most other women wouldn't have had in that time the fact that her um her uncle william pitt the younger never married he was a workaholic really and came to depend on her she became his private secretary really and sort of um she she adored him and she really became his his um Helpmate, really. She, she, she uh, sat. She was the one who created the social, the dinners, and, and the politicians. She learned how to handle politicians. She took a lot of pressure off him, and I think because of the family's wealth, there was no pressure on her to marry to align fort, fortunes together. Um, she, they, it, it, it's interesting. The 
family was very sort of hands off in not pressuring her to um, to marry. I think because she was doing so much to support her uncle he, until he until he passed away. So yeah, the family the family connections and family prominence certainly gave her more freedom to exercise her her um, her dreams. And so when you were first considering doing this project, well, you said at first you were sort of dubious about the concept of doing a biographical novel. Did you always know you were going to focus on this lesser known first part of her life? Yes, I really did. I Because it's bookended so well, I won't sort of give spoiler, you know, but she did. It, it, you could... I don't think you could possibly do her life in one book, her whole life in one book. It's really very clearly two separate times. You know, she definitely there is a there's a transition that is just sort of a natural first and second part of her. So and it's just the because it was set in London, because I she's um, she's really forming herself in this time period. By the time she's in the second half of her life, it's it truly is, I, I you know, I'm I'm doing exactly as I want. There are just no more questions about whether whether I'm going to obey the rules. And and how she comes to that to me was just really fascinating. Well that's true. And there's also a certain tension in the in this first part of her life where you think what is what she, not what she's going to get away with, but what she's going to be able to do. How is her life going to turn out? And then in the second, if I don't know if you're planning this, but if someone does write has written a book about the second part, I think that would almost be more like an Indiana Jones adventure. It's just kind of a person who who knows who they are doing some stuff. It, I think that's exactly it. I, I think what fascinated me was the first half of her life is when she made choices, made really elemental choices. And how what made her do that is just sort of fascinating. Looking at the um, the events she was involved with, the people she was involved with, that's what really fascinated me. How here there there are many times where she reaches a point and she can go one way or another. And how what what sort of made her decide to do certain things, I just found really, really interesting. And so this episode is coming out the same week that your book is being published. Do you have any events or anything planned around the publication? I'm doing a number of other um, interviews. I have a couple of bookstore in my local area in Connecticut and and obviously social media. I'll be blogging on some of the history and and things that that um, tickled my fancy when I was when I was writing the book, uh, all the little nuggets of information I decided. Oh, actually, you just mentioned so you'll be blogging. So that's on your website or where do you do that? I do that at um, the Word Wenches is um, a group blog uh, with a number of other uh, historical writers. It's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> We've been around. We're probably one of the oldest um, group group blogs. We've been around for like fifteen years, so it's it's a fun group. And um, definitely come come visit us for sure. And listeners, I will put a link to that in the show notes, so you can all find that, so you can 
see what you're doing. Yeah. Cause I, I always find it so interesting, the combination of well, what, what history gets put in a fiction novel and what is a great anecdote, but just doesn't fit that, you know, it's just cause you're writing a novel. You can't write every detail. You can't, you can't. I do on my website, I have a, a section called diversions and I try and do little background nuggets on history that I find interesting. Um, and that, that sort of complement the books that, uh, that I'm writing. So, so people can take a look at that and explore. Sort of the wider world. Yeah. Is it sometimes hard to, you have a really fun moment or an anecdote that you wish you could put in the book, but it just doesn't, it doesn't help the story. It doesn't help the fictional narrative. So you have to take it out. It, it's, you know, it, it, there's always a process of, okay, how does the story arc work? And what are you, what, what, what is, what really adds to the development of, of the, the tension of the character? But for me, though, in doing research, discovering all those little things are so much fun because they, they, they just help you get a sense, an overall sense of, of a person or an event and whether they actually get written into the story, they, they just help me visualize and, and imagine the person's life a little more just colorful. They add color, I think, and texture to, to just reading the, a biography of the, she was here, she was there, she did this, she did that. You, you just, it's the little, the little things you discover that, that really make it come alive. I agree. I think come alive is a good way to put it because it's history sometimes, not in your book, but it can just feel sort of like this foreign land where you just don't really understand what's happening. But those little quirks and those little details really make it feel like, oh no, these were real people. Like this was a real story. These are events that you can relate to in some way. Yeah, it's I, I, that's sort of what I love to do with my novels. I, I happen to find I've been a history buff. I, I can't explain why. Even as a little kid, I was fascinated by the past. I loved reading books on King Arthur and what have you. It, it And it to me, it is all about the people. And it's, it's, I, I really, I always, when people say, oh, history, it's so dry. And I, I want to say, no, no, it's mm-hmm. not. It is <laughs> the, it's the people, the people and what they were doing and the, the discoveries and the clashes are, are absolutely fascinating. But you're right. A lot of times it's written in a very dry, um, boring sort of way. And it's, I, I think if you can make it come alive for readers and get them to say, oh my gosh, this is, we, we see where, you know, we're here because of what happened in the past. All of our, you know, society is, is shaped by events from the past and they're, they're real and they're messy and they're chaotic and they're, they're exciting and they're colorful and I, I think I just love trying to convey that to readers. Mm-hmm. And that definitely comes across in this book. It was, it was a, a pleasure to read for me. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Best of luck with all of your launch events and your blogging and everything. I, hope, I really hope that this book finds a ton of readers who all really appreciate it. 
Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. So again, the book is called The Diamond of London. It's the the first historical novel that I'm aware of that talks about this first part of the life of Lady Hester Stanhope, a fascinating person who perhaps I will do a whole episode about later on because I'm I'm really intrigued by it. But I'm really grateful to Andrea for taking the time to talk to me about this book. And so you can keep up with her at her website. Um, I also put a link in the show notes to where she's going to be blogging more historical fun facts about this book. But yeah, The Diamond of London by Andrea Penrose. Check it out. And I'm Ann Foster. This is Vulgar History. And so you can keep up with us like this podcast. I'm on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. If you want to get in touch with me, literally, like you can send me a DM on Instagram, but also you can email me vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. And also if you go to my website, vulgarhistory.com, there's a form there. You can contact me through that as well. We have merch available, vulgarhistory.com slash store, or if you're outside the US, the shipping is a bit better at vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. If you're really into the Regency era, you know, might I suggest the Mary Shelley goth queen mom friend design that's in that store designed by Karen Moynihan. You can also support this podcast on Patreon. If you want to get early ad-free access, you would pledge $1 or more per month. Um, and to do that, you go to patreon.com slash Foster And then if you pledge $5 or more a month, you get the early ad-free access as well as access to bonus episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater, where we talk about costume dramas with Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson. Most recently, we've talked about A Lion in Winter, the Eleanor of Aquitaine movie, and coming up soon will be our episode discussing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which perhaps you don't think of as a costume drama, but we do. Also on the Patreon, that's where I post the after show, where sometimes I have bonus chats with some of my guests. And also there's episodes of So This Asshole, where I talk about terrible men from history. Although I haven't been doing lots of So This Asshole lately, because I want to have fun Doing what I'm doing and talking about terrible men is not always fun. But please know, I have reached, I said before, once I got to at least 500 members of the Patreon, I would do a So This Asshole episode about John Knox. And I have reached 500 members of the Patreon. Thank you to everyone who's joined. And so I will be doing So This Asshole, John Knox. And I think I will find ways to make that enjoyable. And I think also I'll make that available. We'll see. We'll see. I'm going to post that on the, for the Patreons hopefully in the next month or so. And I might find a way to make that available for other people to listen to as well. But we'll see. Anyway, transcripts of this podcast, the recent episodes, we're starting from like the newest ones going backwards, are available at vulgarhistory.com. Thank you to Evelyn Malik, who is providing these transcripts. And until next time, my friends, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.